You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Have you ever been in a conversation with a friend to bring them up to speed? You started to tell them a story only to realize as you got into the story, perhaps with the question they asked immediately into your beginning, that you would suppose that they understood something or someone from some earlier incident. And then you began to say, oh, that's right, let me backtrack a little bit of my story because you don't know about that earlier incident or you don't know about that earlier person. And so then you have to kind of back up to kind of find the point of understanding that at that point of understanding, we can kind of build from there to get to what was the original intended design, which is to tell the story with clarity. It can go something like this. So the other day I was at work and I was talking to a guy, and wait, you got a job? Oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, I got a job. That's amazing. When did you get a job? Well, I was talking to the guy at, at, before my job, a guy named Sam, and he was telling me about an offer that he had at this company. Wait, who is Sam? Okay, yeah, I forgot. So Sam is a guy I met a couple of weeks ago uh, with some friends after church uh, for dinner, and I was telling him what I used to do and what I was interested in doing again, and he realized that he had some contacts, and so he gave me his resume, or excuse me, he allowed me to give him my resume, and he gave it to his boss, which got me an interview. And now I've scored a job. And it comes with a free condo and a Tesla. Since we're in imaginary storytelling mode right now, let's just supersize it. Wow, I'd like to meet Sam. Does he have any other openings? Now that your friend knows you've got the job and how you got the job and where you're at, okay, now they return back to the story and say, okay, what is it that you were telling me again? Like, oh yeah, I forgot. Where did I leave off? You were telling me something happened at work. Oh yes, about work. Well, there's this girl I met there. And then the story's up and running. This all the time happens in conversations. We intersect with each other. We know each other. We, we pick up where we left off, but life has taken place. Conversations have, 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 have been had and people have been met. And it isn't like we've always been there all along. And so at some point we can forget we're somehow losing people along the way. Things that we assume our friends, assume our audience understands, but they do not. Well, that's what's about to happen tonight in our time in the Bible. A conversation's about to take place that you're about to be told about, but it assumes some understandings that many of you might not have. So I hope to tell the whole story so that you can appreciate the story you're eventually going to hear fully in the text. To see it for yourself, let me ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. If you're new to Grace Church, it's our practice to teach through the Bible. Uh, we have them for free. If you want a copy of your own at the back welcome center, there's our same translation which I'm reading from. You're welcome to use your phone or otherwise if you want, or just listen in. But it's been our practice to go through Matthew 19, or excuse me, through the book of Matthew. Right now, we're up to look at the significance of of forgiveness, which I learned last week that Pastor Jose stole some of my material for the upcoming weeks and went into 
Matthew 19, but I'm glad for you guys to have heard that. Let me read to you Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. I'm sure that many of your Bibles have a heading at the beginning of this section that reads something like, teaching about divorce. And this is true. This is indeed what Jesus is talking about, but he is talking about much more, and he assumes much more. There's a lot more going on in the text. But what I've chosen to do tonight is to use our text this evening, as well as some other ones we're going to look at later this evening, as a chance to address a series of topics that I've wanted to address as your pastor, but I've not been sure when's the best time to do so. Our text tonight and the coming week seems like a grand, great chance to do so. So tonight, we're going to begin a series from Matthew 19, a four-part series on gender, relationships, marriage, and divorce. And here's what we're going to learn. Number one, for tonight, why Jesus cares about your gender. Number two, next week, why Jesus cares about your relationship. Number three, why Jesus cares about your marriage. And number four, why Jesus cares about your divorce. Now, let me say at the very outset to a room such as this, realizing we have this diversity of backgrounds and personalities and even experiences, let me just at the outset hopefully explain to you that I speak tonight, and as I do each and every night, really with kind of a dual reality. I speak both as a prophet and as a pastor. My job description in the teaching with what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 is to preach the Word in season and out of season. That's another way of saying that the Bible should be taught all the time, whether or not it's well-received. 
God has spoken in His Word, and I am called as a pastor to bring that to you. This is the part of the prophet. However, I'm also called to be a pastor, to shepherd the sheep. I speak as a fellow forgiven sinner who is living with you in the trenches of this broken world and entirely affected by sin. For some of you, that will mean learning how to help you know how to connect with and care for others. For others as your pastor, that actually means helping connect with you personally as you struggle so painfully, so deeply, that in the quietness of the moment, you have actually thought of ending your own life because of sometimes how difficult such struggles can be. I speak to you tonight as one who cares And I hope that you can see that, and more importantly, that God cares. Having told you where we'll be for the next four weeks and telling you my intention behind these messages as a way to help you hear me, let me get to the topic we want to address from God's Word for this evening. It is the topic of gender. So that you can track with me and know where I'm headed tonight, there are really three parts, and this sort of helps you if you fall asleep in the middle of my talk. If you're wondering, where's the entry ramp back into what he's talking about? Where are we? Part one, the culture's take on gender. Part two, God's take on gender. And part three, what should we do? So first of all, let's talk about the culture's take on gender. In recent months, we have all been faced with this topic directly or indirectly. Recently, we've just finished the Uh, Summer Olympics, our enjoyment of those, celebration of athleticism, and just been just amazed by what people can do. That seems far beyond how much they've practiced, but like true natural athleticism combined with hard work has just been amazing. But in the middle of this celebration of Olympics, we've heard conversations and perhaps even seen videos and accounts on TV of Olympic athletes who have identified as transgender as they've competed. And this has been confusing for a number of people because we're like, wait a minute, aren't these competitions gender-specific? And if so, which gender am I looking at? Am I looking at a man who is competing as a woman but now self-identifies as a woman or vice versa? And what is my role in that? But for others, it's not what's happening in Tokyo. For others, it's what's happening here in Miami. Your own HR departments of your companies have been sending out emails encouraging you, if not really requesting of you, to update your email signature that you might indicate in your signature your pronouns of choice as to how you should be referred to and how you want to be identified, not so much as what you are actually saying, but as to what that company is saying to the larger watching world as to where they identify on this conversation. Meanwhile, others of you are encouraged to go to Facebook. Some of you are like, what is Facebook? You're too young to even know what that social media platform is. You're beyond that with other things like Snapchat and otherwise. But for those of you who are on Facebook, you're encouraged to click on one of 71 options that you have to choose from to identify your gender of choice, at least for today. What's happening? Well, you and I are living in the middle of a sexual revolution of which has progressed to gender revolution. And it really comes down to one basic question. Does your biology determine your destiny? Does your biology determine your destiny? The popular answer to this kind of question is allowed no. 
emphatically no. Many claim seemingly convincingly, seemingly loudly that gender is nothing but a social construct. This distinction has been offered by some that sex might be a reference to human anatomy and corresponding DNA tests, but gender is a psychological reality, independent from biological sex. It is believed to be the subjective, personal self-perception of being male or female. One writer, Christopher Wan, writes the following, quote, given that sex is objective and gender is subjective, you would think we would value conforming one's subjective ideas to objective truth. Instead, the opposite is the case. Our culture now values altering the objective, physical reality of our bodies to accommodate the subjective impression of ourselves. Now, it's worth noting as a way to say it at the outset, because some will certainly want to be told this as a seemingly checkmate fact, isn't there, aren't there are people who are identified as intersex? Intersex, doesn't this seemingly sort of trump the whole gender conversation? Well, just by way of consideration, intersex is extremely rare, and what it is is an intersexuality of biological phenomenon where an individual may have genital ambiguity or genetic variants in their human biology. However, anomalies do not nullify categories nor abolish binary understandings. We do not take the exceptional, extremely rare, and make it the normative to create a new narrative. But this is not accepted. Outlier biological phenomenons are now being used to kick open the door on gender confusion. Today's identity revolution is offering freedom from old categories and stereotypes. It's a new day and age. It's a new freedom and opportunity. You are allowed to be liberated and join with the rest of those around you. Allowing you to be your supreme court of identity that cannot be trumped by someone else but instead should only be accommodated and also celebrated. Self-perception is being allowed to eclipse biology. And this is all under the banner of freedom, of liberty, of love. And those just sound principally good. Who wants to advocate for not being free, of not being loving, But it's not all that we actually see or hear. What's actually happening is that this is not freedom, it's compounding confusion. And it's ushering people into a cage of subjective relativism. What is at the root of the confusion today over what is male or female is the elevation of subjective experience over objective truth. This is not freedom, it is slavery. It is not liberating, nor is it loving. Now, to make sure we understand some definitions, let me just explain to you, for those of you who maybe are newer to the conversation, to make sure we're on the same page as we then go back to Matthew 19 in a few minutes and also look at Galatians as well, specifically the topic of transgenderism. Now, transgenderism is the umbrella term 
for the state of identifying or expressing your gender different than what, how you match with and identify with your physical genetic sex. Transgenders, independent of sexual orientation, those who identify as transgender may consider themselves to be heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pansexual, polysexual, or asexual. When children who reported transgender feelings were tracked without medical or surgical intervention, as reported by Vanderbilt University and London's Portman Clinics, up to 80% of those children spontaneously lost those feelings of transgender confusion once they grew up. Some 25% did have persisting feelings, but what differentiates those individuals remains completely misunderstood. And yet, despite the results of such objective studies, several states throughout the United States have passed laws prohibiting psychiatrists, even with parental permission, from striving to restore natural gender feelings to a transgender minority. In 2011, a study at the Karolinski Institute in Sweden followed 324 people who had sex reassignment surgery. Over a span of 30 years, the overall rate of death was higher than expected, with suicide being the leading cause. In fact, they found out that those who had had the sex change surgery were almost 20 times more likely to take their own lives than others had. That statistic is not denied by many in the transgender advocacy community, but they flip it and say, what's well, because they're not being accepted well? But actually, the studies do not show that at all. Back in the 1960s, John Hopkins University became the first American medical center to offer sex reassignment surgery. But they later stopped performing the procedure after a study of transgender people in the 70s. The study compared the outcomes of transgendered people who had the surgery with the outcomes of those who did not. Most of the surgically treated patients described themselves as quote-unquote satisfied by the results, but their subsequent psychosocial adjustments were no better off after the surgery. Former psychiatrist-in-chief at John Hopkins Hospital, Dr. McHugh, said the following, at Hopkins, we stopped doing sex reassignment surgery since producing a, quote, satisfied, end quote, but still troubled patient seemed an inadequate reason for surgically amputating normal organs. At the heart of the problem is confusion over the nature of transgender, says McCall, excuse me, McHugh. He says sex change is biologically impossible. People who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinized women, claiming that this is a civil rights matter and encouraging surgical intervention is in reality to collaborate with and promote a mental disorder. Do you see why I said a few minutes ago that this is not freedom and it's slavery, it's not liberating, it's not loving. In the midst of this clash of worldviews and competing ideologies are real people with real struggles. This is not just about propositions. This is about people, neighbors, relatives, 
family members, perhaps people here tonight. And that part's often divorced and missed from this conversation. They should not be wrongly stigmatized. They wrestle with the consequence of the fall as, as all of humanity does, including you and I. And my hope today is to bring God's Word to light on the subject, which takes us now to part two, God's take on gender. Now go back to Matthew 19, if you would, please. Jesus, in the middle of this conversation, is it describing Him moving geographically from one location to another, large crowds following Him, the Pharisees coming to ask Him a question, we're trying to find out which rabbinical school of interpretation He's in, asks him about divorce. But look at what Jesus says in verse 4. And this goes back to what I said at the very outset of our time together about having a conversation that the person you're having it with doesn't understand everything being said before. Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Let me just briefly make three observations in the text. The statement, first of all, have you not read? Jesus is being brought into a cultural debate. This cultural debate is right now in the text happening between religious groups. They want to know whose side Jesus is on. They want to know where does he side. This is not the only time Jesus gets asked this kind of line of thinking when he gets into a number of questions about taxes, about any number of issues about the Sabbath. They want to know Jesus' answer. They sometimes try to come in the back door on him and be able to talk about his disciples instead of asking him directly. However, here they are talking about divorce. Notice where he goes. Jesus goes back to the Word of God. His starting point is where he assumes their starting point was going to be, the Bible. The Bible. When we try to find answers to our questions from another authority, our professors from college, our HR departments, the popularized opinion that's put out to us culturally through different media outlets, whatever those might be, our friends whom we desperately want their acceptance and affirmation of us, Wherever we might instead find alternative sources to authority that determines our thinking and our subsequent actions, we are replacing the authority of the Word of God. And when we do that, we will fall short of arriving at clarity with confidence every single time. Jesus teaches us something that should not be missed. When dealing with an issue, the issue starts with, by way of response, in the Scriptures. We'll turn more to that in a minute. Secondly, I want you to see by brief observation, it says there in the text, he who created them from the beginning. What Jesus does here is he goes back to creation, day one of human history. But by appealing to creation, he is really using what's oftentimes a rabbinical sort of conversation. See, what's happening in rabbinical conversation here in the context is they're like, hey, which school of our Judaic interpretation of the rabbinical law are you on as it relates to this topic of divorce? And as we're going to see in the coming weeks, Moses is about to get referenced. Well, didn't Moses say? And what's happening here is that the idea is that if you could go back to a, an older citation, that would trump an earlier citation. So you could say, you know, Abraham predates Moses, so any reference to Abraham is greater of authority than Moses. 
But what Jesus does is he goes and does what actually Paul later does himself in 1 Timothy. In the context of 1 Timothy, Paul is addressing one of his earliest disciples, Timothy, who is helping him pastor a church that he used to pastor at Ephesus and help set it straight. And he's talking specifically in the context of men and women in the church, and he appeals to creation to reestablish the order of relationships. Well, that's exactly what Jesus does here himself in Matthew 19. Jesus is describing here what is significant, that the creation narrative is giving the intended divine design. And that was his reference point. That's the intended reality here. They don't leapfrog over cultural references to just get back to something else that they prefer. They go back to clearly where it is intended. That's even what we heard this evening from Christian's writings, or excuse me, Christian's reading from Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. And this is helpful to us in the gender discussions. We can get lost in some new report, some new study, some new professor, some new school, some new professional. And you kind of feel like you're honestly kind of like out fact-checked in some sense. Like, well, your information is rather dated. In that sense, as a Christian, you can say it actually really is very dated. But I wouldn't say it's outdated. But I would agree it's dated. It goes back all the way to the beginning of time in the earliest page of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, where God is communicating that He indeed designed man with intended categories. He created binary categories with a specific intention in mind. It's not simply for procreation purposes, not simply to just be able to be anatomically complementary one another for the purpose of procreation. Instead, as we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it reads, God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Every man and woman is created in the image of God, which is a reference to the reality of how they express his personhood in society. It is an ontological reality created by God. Being made male and female cannot be changed by human hands. Sex or gender is a category of God's handiwork, his original and intended design. And what you often hear today, what you often see today, is nothing more than a rewriting of or reworking of what we saw in Genesis 3, where the serpent says, did God really say? As a point of undermining and causing great doubt, is this really true? These writings are primitive. We are now more educated. We are now more culturally dialed in. We're now more scientifically aware. We should cast off these old myths and fables that seemingly are poetic at best and at worst misogynistic, racist, judgmental, filled with lessons on hate. We should shut this book and open our mind to the new revelation of today. This is a common temptation for many people, not just outside this room, but inside this room. This takes us to a third observation, which is he made the male and female. 
So he created them from the beginning and he made the male and female. It's the significance of what it means here that there is a gender reality to God's intended design. Think about the context of marriage, how God purposely chooses the marriage, as we see in Ephesians chapter 5, to give a profound lesson to the watching world of reality, spiritual reality between Christ and the church and what that looks like. Now, continuing this thought of God's take, let me address the relationship of desire and identity. And let me introduce it to this conversation because of understandings have been treated as really kind of a royal flush card in this poker game of life. Like, if I feel this way, you cannot deny my personhood by shutting me down my feelings. And if you do that, you itself are committing really unloving acts. To flip that from a less gracious term to a more significant term, more significant acts of hatred. And if you were to recognize my psychologized personhood, then you should respect my dignity and allow me to self-identify as I would so choose to do so. What about this topic of desire and identity? Well, let me have you turn in Galatians. If you're not familiar with the book of Galatians, just go to the right in your Bibles from where you were in Matthew. Galatians, written by the Apostle Paul. As you turn into Galatians chapter 5, you can see in the table of contents, if you're not familiar where that's at, what page you find it on. In, in, in my Bible, it's page 972. I don't know how that corresponds to your pages. Galatians. Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And in Galatians, Paul is addressing the fact that these Christians have had teachers come in after Paul after a faithful pastor who's taught them the Word of God, it basically said, hey, you can keep Jesus, but you got to return back to some things about the law you need to do. So it's like faith plus works. And kind of modern day sort of religious associations, faith plus sacraments. And so this idea of this is being discussed in the larger narrative of the book, but I want you to look at Galatians chapter 5. He's talking about how we're free now in Christ. We've been free from the, the, the penalty of sin, free from the, um, the power of sin. And he starts talking about this freedom in verse 13. You're called to freedom, brothers. Do not use your, your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now jump down to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. Look at what Paul says here. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, we'll stop right there. Now, for those of you who are new to the Bible and not familiar with this kind of vocabulary, the idea of flesh might sound primitive or just confusing as if we're talking about like actually like body parts here. That's not actually how the Bible describes this term. It's often used as a term to describe desire. Uh, desire that you have. And it's talking about the reality in this kind of understanding that in Christian life, you are, through faith in Christ, you are set free from the penalty of sin. You don't have to fear that reality or that present practice of the wrath of God being poured on you. Number two, you're free from the power of sin. You can indeed be able to say no to its power in your life. Though thirdly, you're not necessarily yet free from the presence of sin. It is still around us. 
not just in the world at large, but even in our own hearts at times. Even though we have a new heart, the temptation is still there. And we'll see example from Paul in that himself biographically in Romans chapter 8. Excuse me, Romans chapter 7. But what I want you to see is several important lessons here in Galatians 5. And earlier to recognize this, go to back to chapter 2. So just keep your finger in chapter 5, go to chapter 2. Look at what he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here's the first important lesson that we want to recognize from Galatians. Number one, no one has peace with God through what they do or don't do. No one has peace with God through what they do or don't do. It is only through faith in Christ. You say, okay, I thought we are talking about gender. We are, but here's what I want you to recognize. I want you to recognize we are not first and foremost interested in what you do with your mind or your body. We're first of all interested in what you do with your faith. Where do you place your faith? Everybody has it. You're demonstrating it right now as I speak to you. The question is, to whom is the object of your faith placed? Where is it in place? And we see here throughout Scripture, particularly in Genesis, or excuse me, in Galatians, that faith is to be in Christ. This is not a good news of gender, a good news of sexuality. It is a good news of Jesus Christ for all sinners. I say this because statistically speaking, statistically speaking, in this room here tonight, very few are in any way identifying as transgender. In fact, uh, according to a Gallup poll in 2020, it said uh, 3% of Americans identify as bisexual, 1.4% identify as gay, uh, 0.7% identify as lesbian, and 0.6% identify as transgender. Why do I reference that statistic now? I reference the statistic now because we're talking about this. You might feel like, well, this conversation is not really related to me. Friend, it is related to you because what you've got to recognize in Galatians is that Galatians is dealing with sin of everybody, not just particular sins, and the temptations that are even present in the lives of people who are themselves Christians as well. So what we want to recognize here is, first and foremost, no one has peace with God through what they do or don't you. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, our freedom from the consequence of sin and the power of sin does not mean we're free from the presence of sin. And that goes back to Galatians 5, verse 16. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Friends, there's no neutral ground, no neutral territory. Everybody has a choice to make. What will you do with your mind? What will you do with your time? What will you do with your desires? You're not in a state of neutrality. Everybody's actively working towards or working against the Word of God as being the will of God for our lives. For those of us who are Christians, we want to walk in the direction that does not gratify the flesh, but it gratifies the Spirit, because it is indeed God's intended design for His people to walk in holiness. Not as a display of their self-righteousness, but as a display of God transforming their lives. New desires, new affections, new pursuits. 
They love what they once hated, and they now hate what they once loved. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The third thing we need to understand about desire is that the presence of desire does not determine your identity. Paul speaks candidly of desire here in Galatians 5. It says, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Listen to me. When a married man looks at another woman who is not his wife and thinks about having sexual relationships with her, that desire, known biblically as temptation, that desire is not some indication to that man that he's actually been created by God to be a polygamist. And if he wants to find himself fully satisfied in his personhood, he should freely, publicly, without reservation or hesitation, pursue that and ask all relationships and relatives and co-workers around him to support that pursuit as an expression of respective personhood and internal desire because it's, after all, not fleeting, it's reoccurring. My point is this. Desire does not equal destiny. And the fact that you have a desire that's different than what God's Word is for you doesn't make you weird. It makes you normally human just like me and everybody else in this room. While our desires might differ in their detail, they principally do not differ and they're often pursuing the things God is not wanting for us to pursue. And I say this as a, as a moment of solidarity with any and everybody here to recognize that the Bible has already been the one having this conversation. We act like we're new to it. In other words, God's like, I've been here for thousands of years, been teaching people for thousands of years. You can, you can give all your scientific studies all you want. I've been here this whole time. Conflicting desires from our identities and responsibilities is not unique to those who struggle with gender dysphoria. We are all affected and struggle in some way from original sin, the moral consequence of the fall. And we're all in need of grace, God's grace and grace from each other. Therefore, we remind each other of our desperate need for the only solution for our sinful nature which is Jesus Christ, the Savior. He alone is the Savior. And correspondingly, for those who put their faith in Him, He gives us the church as the family to whom cares for us, walks with us, prays with us, and teaches us. While no single talk can cover all that can be covered on this topic, I, I hope I've offered at least some things that can be helpful to you to frame it for you biblically and relationally. But as your pastor, I also want us to be biblically grounded and culturally honest and pastorally caring, which is third and final. Well, I want to offer you part three, what should we do? What we should do. 
Let me give you five steps. We'll end with these five. Number one, renew your commitment to the Bible's authority on the topic. Renew your commitment to the Bible's authority on the topic. I find today many Christians are left exposed on how little they know their Bibles. And I do not mean that in any way to shame anybody here, but I mean that as your pastor to speak candidly, that you'll be surprised the corresponding relationship on your regular, I don't want to create a legalistic expectation of using the word daily, but regular quiet time, regular time of reading the word, of listening to it read. If you need to, maybe if reading can be a, a learning difficulty for you, have, it, have, have a, a reading app read it to you, or other opportunities to have it explained to you through good books, through good sound teachings explained to you, how commonly Christians are left exposed that when they encounter worldly ideologies, worldly thoughts, they're like, I, uh, they feel flat-footed, and they're like, okay. Because when words like loving and kind and gracious and accepting are being used, all things which Christians are like genuinely very interested in, we're like, well, yeah, I guess put my name on that clipboard. And they do not understand the Scriptures. So I'm saying this is an opportunity for us to renew our commitment to the Bible's authority on this topic. Everybody else is offering their authority. Everybody else is citing somebody else's authority. Let's go back to what the Word of God actually says. Secondly, do not be bullied by others into compromising your beliefs. Do not be bullied by others into compromising your beliefs. This is a chance for Christians to have courage with their convictions. I find it's more easier for Christians to have convictions if they know their Bible, but to not have much courage because they're worried about losing reputation. They're worried about losing friendship. They're worried about being slighted or thought of as being old-fashioned or outdated, or they're worried about being labeled with hatred. Friends, I just want to challenge you to recognize the reality of what is true if you're going to live as a Christian you will not just be misunderstood by this world at times, at times you will be hated by this world. And that just puts you in good company with brothers and sisters for thousands of years who have kept that same type of faithful devotion to walk in that direction, even at the expense of very meaningful, loving relationships that you otherwise wish you could have had. So be aware of the intolerance of tolerance. You realize that, right? That's sort of the irony of this new tolerance. It's the only thing it doesn't want to tolerate is your disbelief in its propositions. It's ironically some of the most intolerance being presented in the name of tolerance. Third, learn to differentiate between ideas and people. Learn to differentiate between ideas and people. Some of you love getting into the debates on this topic. You love getting into the propositions and sort of the logical fallacies. You love sort of listening and sort of like fact-checking and with actually, did you know? I understand that depending on the environment and the arena, that certainly has a place for interaction as a point of intellectual credibility and honesty. But for many people, this is far more complicated and far more personal. 
Learn to treat people with respect. Especially treat those who identify as transgender with compassion. Acknowledge the struggle. Identify principally with the struggle. Not in a condescending, patronizing way, as if you're patting them on the head, but recognizing the real struggle with this. I want to flag particularly for those of you who are parents. You should help your children discern truth from falsehood, reality from feeling, true identity from counterfeit identity. Historically, in the recent decades, transgenderism has largely been a pursuit of a small minority number of males. However, from 2008 to 2018, a 10-year period of time, there was a 4,400% increase in the amount of transgender treatments requested by teenage girls in previous decade, specifically in the United Kingdom. It's not unique to that country. Why? Why is this? Young ladies, largely due to social media, have struggled with their bodies, finding it confusing and disinterested based on various factors. As a result, it's not uncommon for them to want to identify as a male in order to distance themselves from those feelings and experiences and people. Instead of talking with them through those problems, they're often made worse by such confusion being validated, being funded, and being surgically facilitated as body parts are removed and functioning organs are shut down with medicine. That's not helpful. What would it look like for you as a Christian to instead be perhaps a lone voice in their life that loves them and talks with them, that gets to the questions behind the questions, to recognize people are struggling. Sin will find its way out in our lives in any number of ways, and culture over the years just gives us new outlets and new ideas. But when that dies down, some new outlet, new idea will come along, and we'll pursue that, all in the name of pursuing these sinful desires that will not satisfy. They will not offer freedom. They will offer death. Fourth, love your neighbor. Talk with them. Share meals with them. Read with them. Do Bible studies with them. Very rarely this conversation is going to be able to take place in a meaningful way in a matter of soundbite interaction. If you think, for example, you can get into a really intellectually meaningful relationship dialogue in social media, <laughs> I mean to laugh at you. Rare is that the case. Rare is that the case when that space is so filled with internet trolls and the like. So filled with sort of mic drop moments of, of declarations and retweets and, and, and links being sent. Instead of taking on the world's problems, just befriend those around you. Love them. Don't just talk with them. Listen to them. Share meals together. Read together. Ask them if they'd read with you the teachings of Jesus. Go through the gospel of Mark with them. Love them well. In a world where Christians are often being accused of being hatred, show them what real love looks like. Not simply accepting their ideologies and letting, leaving them in their own slavery, but loving them to 
sit with them, listen to them, and learn with them from the Scriptures. Last, number five, pray for each other. Renew your commitment to the Bible, its authority in the topic. Do not be bullied by others into compromising your beliefs. Learn to differentiate between ideas and people. Love your neighbor. And fifth and final, pray for each other. The larger conversation of issues related to the LGBTQ plus conversation is one of the most common exit doors for professing Christians to walk out of not only leaving behind the church, but leaving behind their Christianity. You spend any time online, any time engaging with others, you have heard of recent years the term deconstruction. It's the idea of deconstructing your faith, deconstructing your experience. And it doesn't take much to kind of ring that bell. It's not just simply on this topic. You can have a bad experience. You can have been a victim of abuse. You can have a bad relationship. It can be from mild to severe, and any point can be a trigger by which people begin to understand, they'll be questioned, what have I believed this whole time? Who have I been listening to this whole time? That's not uncommon. But that is a very alluring temptation of Satan to lead people away. It's one of the most common ways in which we see churches compromise and we see Christians compromise because they want to be found as loving, as accepting, as respectful. They want to be seen as being generous. And the cue cards have already been written for them. The path has already been set for them. And if they'll just follow it, it's guaranteed to be for that pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. And so that's a cliff into despair with no more objective truth to guide your way. That's why I say pray for each other. That we might hold fast to the confession of the faith, not in pride but in humility that we're not above that temptation ourselves. As I told you at the beginning of this, Jesus is having a conversation in Matthew 19. It's about divorce. But his audience understood something that I want to make sure this audience understands as well. And tonight, that first installment is why Jesus cares about your gender. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.